0: Darling, how are
1: you? I'm fantastic. You look and sound so much better. How the fuck are you?
0: I know I'm not a morning person at all in case that's not abundantly <laughs> clear. <right there. laughs>
1: I'm not really either, but I'm one of those people who has forced myself to be now in my my adult years, which overrated, honestly.
0: I mean, I force myself. I'm not happy about it, <laughs> but uh, I do it. I mean, you know, majority of my work life is now afternoon into evenings. And when I I started doing that, I was like, I literally don't know how I was like my ass in an office at 9 a.m. every day. How the fuck did I do that? That was miserable. You're like, people can live in the night. It's amazing. You
1: could just, that's when you work, you sleep during the day. Children of the night. That's yeah. <laughs> That's us. Yep. Absolutely. Fuck. Oh yeah. So million dollar question. Oh girl, I have of course watched it. Of course. Of course. Of course. And it was very good. It started so well, like got me in the gut immediately. Uh-huh. Yeah. I want to hear what you think about it before I say anything else honestly.
0: So important to remember I have zero point of reference as to how this is supposed to go down. So I really loved it. I really liked
1: it. Okay. It was fantastic. It was very true to the video game. However, Johnny being Johnny made me watch the cutscenes from the video game again so I could compare it. And to make a point, and I do kind of agree with his point, which is there were like two very brief moments that were much more powerful in the video game than they were in the movie. Not to say that the show was not amazing and the performances were not amazing. It was just slightly different tonally. And I think it, it like changed the vibe a little bit, but I don't want to say anything else because I don't want to spoil anything. Sure. But overall, fantastic.
0: Yeah. Did you listen to the companion podcast or any of that? No, fuck. I feel
1: like that's going to be my detox from the show now that I don't have the show to look forward to every week. Like I'll, I'll listen to the podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. My mom also told me there was a like behind the scenes special they put out.
0: Yeah. Like a half an hour making of. Yeah. Like immediately after. Yeah. I I burned through all of it. I didn't watch that either. God damn it. I did. I watched all of it. I listened to all of it. The companion podcast is excellent because Troy Baker, who plays Joel in the game, is the host. (gasps) And. Oh, yes. Girl. Why were they not advertising as that? Like I
1: was I'm so sold now. And I'm mad at myself.
0: Girl, so every episode, it's him, Craig Mason, and uh, Neil Druckmann in every episode. And then sometimes they'll have a guest who's relevant. That is the series, the the companion piece, the companion podcast. And it's wonderful.
1: I'm like flabbergasted and a little speechless. And I'm so mad at myself that I didn't know this because I obviously would have binged all of it immediately if I had known that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a.k. me. The same with me last, last episode when I was like, how did no one tell me that Craig Mason was involved in this? I would have pinched the fuck out of this. Yes, that's how I feel right now. It's wonderful. I'm just going to spoil. It's not really a spoiler, but Go for it. Uh, in episode three with the Companion podcast, they hired our love, Murray Bartlett, before White Lotus came out. Oh, what? Because he's that amazing. Why am I acting shocked? Yeah. So they like, so they, he got hired and then White Lotus comes out and they're like, holy fuck. He's like even fucking better than we knew. Holy shit. Oh, uh, I love that so much. I mean, I know. And it also just goes to show like how just things like take a really long time. And and even though like he was hired for this, you know, what, season one White Lotus came out how many years ago? Fuck. Like three years ago? Two, three. Yeah. You know, and, and, Just now this is coming out. It's so much more
1: like special effects and the sets are so much more intense, I feel like. So I get why it took so long. Yeah. But that does blow my mind. Holy fuck.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's just like great, I'm someone who gets very turned on by the creative process. So I love like picking apart a scene and this and why was it this choice and that? And why was it at nighttime instead of daytime as opposed to this? Blah, blah, blah. So I, I love all of that. And for any of you Broadway folk, there's a very fun reveal, which I'll just, it doesn't matter. I'll just say it in, in uh, the companion podcast, again, in episode three, because so like, how did you pick the song? Because music is very important in the show and it's very meaningful. And how did you pick the song? And Craig Mason's like, well, you know, I this is what I wanted for a song. I wanted it to be about unrequited love and just like living in that space, but not to be like super like saccharine and super like overdone. And he's like, and I just wasn't getting it. He's like, so I texted my good friend Seth Rudetsky, who is a Broadway icon. Like anyone who has even like just a passing knowledge of Broadway. Knows who Seth Brodetsky is,
1: which is not me. I have zero knowledge, so I need you in my life. Yes.
0: But like when I heard that, I was like, what the fuck? Like, how do you two know each other? But it's, you know, it just goes to show how like all of the arts kind of just, there's the Venn diagram, they all interlap. And he said that the second he texted him what he was looking for, that literally like the three dots came up because immediately. And then he was like, fuck, that's it. That's the song. I love that so much. Also, I will say in episode five of the companion podcast, Troy Baker gets emotional talking about the final scenes of the episode. Really? And like a reveal that like I didn't catch. And then he says it and like he says it choked up and I was like, oh my God. Like, and, and Craig's like, yep, that's it. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even like catch that. Oh, it's so good.
1: Oh, all right. That'll be my, that'll be my thing for the week. fucking Absolutely damn it I'm mad at myself that I didn't listen to it and now we can't talk about it together all right we'll have it next week that's fine we'll have it next week I know where you live you do know where I live (laughs) it's so good that should have sounded threatening but it wasn't at all and I'm kind of like titillated by it you do know where I live
0: what's fucked up is you don't really know where I live uh
1: that is true Now that I'm thinking about it, I know the general vicinity, but no, I don't know where you live. Yeah. You're an enigma, Monique, still. Contain multitudes. Yeah. What can I say? I kind of love it. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know what she's doing or where
0: she is or who you're with. Like, AKA, as I I think about this all of the time, because I'm a psycho, I can't alibi myself like 90% of the time. (laughs) This is what runs through my head. All of the time.
1: You're like, I'm so fucked if they ever try to pin me for a murder. Like, uh
0: <laughs> No one's gonna vouch for me. Literally. And then you look at my fucking search history, I'm super fucked. Are you kidding me? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Thank God I'm just at home all
1: the time. And there's usually a witness here to see me at home. That is true. Yeah. Because otherwise, same. I <laughs> sketchy search history and uh-huh. no location.
0: Yeah. I also recently, when I was sick, uh, I did finally watch Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, which I had <gasps> never seen.
1: What? Oh, I fucking love that movie. It's so good. That movie is so insane. It's ridiculous and hilarious and just so fun. It's such a, like... It's ridiculous. Yes. Wonderful, lighthearted movie.
0: Yeah. Also, Everyone Buried the Lead, again, that Alan Cumming was in that movie. Oh, fuck. I absolutely would have seen it sooner. I... I fucking
1: forgot he's in that.
0: Honestly, it's been,
1: I like saw it in high school. So it's probably been like a decade. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's like, cause I will regularly play time after time at the bar and then there'll be multiple people who will do the Romy Michelle dance. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. So when I was hacking up along, I was like, I think now is the moment to indulge in this. I love that. I did. It's insane. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) I, it's
1: terrible. That the thing I really just remember is like I invented Post-Its. Like that's pretty much it.
0: Yeah, I, it's funny because the the commercial, the trailer for it, is very seared into my brain for some reason. Okay, and I don't know why, but I one of the main parts of the commercial is is Lisa Kudrow coming up to get her award, being like, "I can't find my top. I misplaced my top." And like I remember watching it as kid, being like what the fuck is that about? <laughs> <laughs> and then like 20, 30 years later, whatever the fuck, I finally see it. I'm like, it makes just as little sense now as it did then. Like, I still, I still don't know what that's about, honestly. Yeah. It's great. It's If you want to watch something insane, go for it. It's a great 90 minutes, in
1: and out, the way God uh, intended. 90s movies, am I right? Or early 2000s, when we they were not three hours long yet? For sure. What the fuck? I might have to rewatch that because I clearly
0: don't I clearly don't remember most of it. I mean, there's minimal plot points to follow. And like but like everyone is in this movie. You have Jenny Graflo, you have Justin Thoreau. I love Jenny Garofflo too. I mean, big fan. What an icon.
1: I mean, I literally wanted to dress up as her character from Mystery Men back in the day. I wanted to be the bowler. I've actually never seen Mystery Men. (gasps) I know. That is another really fun, really silly like cult classic that I feel like didn't get great reviews, but is honestly, hands down, one of my favorite movies. It's so ridiculous and just so fun. Eddie Izzard's in it. Like I love Eddie.
0: (sighs) Well, I remember when it came out, I really wanted to see it, but it was like never on anything and if like you, if HBO or Comedy Central didn't play it like 40 times a day, I didn't watch it.
1: Yes. Oh, I remember those days. I think I actually went to see that in theaters with my mom. Damn. Yeah. And I was obsessed. I wanted the bowling ball with the skull in it, Monique, because I'm a fucking Fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm a morbid dark child. The writing was on the wall, baby. Yeah. Who grew into a morbid dark <laughs> adult. <laughs> Uh, I almost said human like I was an alien when I was a child. <laughs> like I grew into a human. I was not originally. I mean, maybe you were. I don't know. <sighs> Monique, if only.
0: That would explain so much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I would secretly be so thrilled.
0: I know you would. That's why I'm trying to gift you this possibility. Thank you. Yes, ending If we do an improv. <laughs> Which I love
1: about you. Thank you for humoring me and all my weird my weird desires.
0: Always. It's, it's very mutual. You humor me and my fucking nonsense. Oh my gosh, of course. It's like, <laughs> we're two fucked up peas in a pod. Girl. It's funny when, um, I was, I was, uh, choosing prospective, uh, titles for last week's episode. I like went through all of our episode titles to be like, am I like doing like a double of anything? <laughs> I thought that too. And then I came up with, a <laughs> Because it was, I suggested something similar for another episode that we didn't use. And then I came across Two Peas in a Fucked Up pot, and I was like, oh, yeah, we, we are. are. I love it. Uh, my psychic sister, always. Girl, always, always and forever. It did snow
1: a little bit today. It did. It's fucking freezing. I'm wearing a sweater and my teddy coat. Oh, but my God. I, I will admit the flurries, watching the flurries was kind of nice.
0: Was nice. Because the only other time it really snowed this year Was when I was sick, so I slept through it. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't been a lot, though. Like, nothing...
1: I don't know if this is different with you, but, like, nothing was sticking out here. No, no, not at all. It was all just, like, flurries, melted, nothing on the ground. Like, the teeniest of flurries ever. Yeah. And it was nice. And I love an excuse not to have to go outside. It's my fucking favorite. I'm like, no, it's snowing. We have to, like, stay warm.
0: (laughs) I definitely did have a thought. Well, I was outside. um, (laughs) But I did. But as I was freezing on my way home, I was like, this is a perfect night to just after we record, obviously, to just snuggle up and for some reason watch Robin Hood Men in Tights. (gasps) I mean, I'm not upset about
1: that. I very much enjoy Mel Brooks. I actually watched History of the World Part Two on Hulu. How was that? Okay. Go in with low expectations and you will be pleasantly surprised. So like obviously they're little different skits. Sure. Hit or miss. Some of them were great and really funny and I love them. And some of them I was just like,
0: eh, okay. That's what I heard. I heard I heard when it hits, it hits, and when it misses, it misses. Yes.
1: But overall, I very much enjoy Mel Brooks and I very much enjoy that type of comedy. So I I enjoyed it. I binge watched the whole eight episodes or whatever it was in one sitting. So Oh shit. Yeah.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. Cool. They're
1: short. They're like 30 minutes.
0: Oh, okay. I love that. Because then you're you didn't like waste your day. I was like, I mean this was like three hours. Yeah. Yeah. It was it went by so quickly. I was like, oh wait, is it it's done? It's over? Okay. Shit. All right.
1: Cool. So yeah, I support any watching of Mel Brooks,
0: honestly, because I very much enjoy him. I mean, yeah. Even when it's like not super great, like Dracula Dead and Loving It, it's still so- Wonderful. I actually
1: don't think I've
0: seen that. Very few people have seen it. I went with my mom and my brothers to see it in the movie theater when we were kids. I have to watch this now. <laughs> it's like, it's it's uh, Leslie Nielsen as Dracula. It's ridiculous. It's a lot of fun. And it, <laughs> it spawned a phrase that my brothers and I say to this day, which is, Redfield, you asshole, that no one ever knows what we're talking about. But it's, it's, from, it's one of the last lines in Dracula Dead and Loving It. I love that. Inside jokes that nobody else gets. Yeah. <laughs> kind of I really do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a perk of siblings. But there's not, there's not a lot more than that. Okay.
1: <laughs> I would not know. So I appreciate that information.
0: There you go. Also, I only have uh, male siblings. I don't have any female siblings. I don't know if that's better or worse. I don't know. I've heard some horror stories, but... Same. Yes. But I never had anyone to share clothes with.
1: So that was a little bit of a bummer.
0: Yeah. But that's also alleging they'd have my same taste.
1: Yes. So, Or that they'd let you share your clothes. Or we'd be the same size. That too. That too. Yeah. You know. I do have a little shout out. It was both of my parents' birthdays this week. So happy birthday to the people who gave me life. Huzzah.
0: And I knew that now because you reminded me because it was my dad's birthday this weekend. Oh, shit. Because I remember my dad and your parents are like, within a couple days look at that this weekend uh celebrated people who brought you us you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) they're so proud did they did your parents do anything fun i
1: talked to my dad i haven't had a chance to talk to my mom yet unfortunately uh so i didn't ask but as far as i know yes i'm gonna believe yes nice wonderful how about your dad
0: Yeah, he uh, my mom took him to like basically like a like almost not super dissimilar to like a cocktail magic. Like it was like burlesque and circus and aerial work and shit like that. Nice. Which I had no idea that they were into this because I'm like, you know, I see this like all of the time. And uh, they had a very nice time, apparently. And my my dad pulled a very baller move because so the show takes place in this—it's a cabaret in this bougie as fuck hotel in Miami Beach called Faena, and everything's expensive. It's like always hard to get a reservation. Like blah blah blah. So my parents like decided that they were going to go to one of the like—it's like a like almost like a speakeasy type thing at at the hotel where the show was called the living room. And I was like, why don't you just go? Like if you're still like hungry, you want drinks or dancing, whatever, just go to the living room afterwards. So they get out of the show, they go to the living room. There's a dude at the door and he's like, do you have a reservation? And my dad, Roberto goes, yeah. And he's like, what's your name? And he goes, well, he's like, what's the name of the reservation? He's like, the name is I just spent a thousand dollars at this hotel. Damn.
1: And they fucking let him in. I mean, I would too after that. I'd be like,
0: "Oof, fuck. He's like, I literally just spent a thousand dollars here. That's my reservation. Good for him. And I'm like, that's a fucking baller move. My dad's baller like that, though. Yeah, that is something that would never
1: occur to me to say or do. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, no, I'm so sorry. I'll leave right now.
0: I'm sorry. Like, if there's any, like, room, like, for me to, yeah, I won't even take a yep. seat. I'll just stand in the back. It's fine. I'm sorry I exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Literally apologizing for existing.
0: Roberto's like, no, I just dropped a grand here so I can go wherever the fuck I want. <laughs> Trust me, you have a seat for me. Yeah. And they went, and they danced, they had a good time. I was like, fuck. Good for them.
1: So, you know, yeah. All right. going to live my life and ask myself, what would Roberto do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, he has the audacity, but like it works out for him for sure. That's that's the kind of life I want to be living, Onique. I mean, same. <laughs> audacity, but it works out for me. I'm working on it, girl. Fuck. Like literally, he started his career in healthcare because he, he used to work for as an accountant, and he like audited a hospital when he was like in his 20s. And then he like called up the hospital and was like, hey, so I did your books and you guys are super fucked. And I'm pretty sure that I can fix this shit. And they're like, great. And that's how he like, created his
1: career. That is insane. Good for
0: fucking him. Yeah. Audacity. He was like 24. Pays the fuck off though, clearly. I clearly, yeah. Roberto's nailing it. So you don't fuck with this, Marie. That's right. You don't fuck
1: with it's something. I'm off, but I, you know what I'm talking about. You're fucking with the wrong Marie. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> also, one of our episode titles that I came across it was a couple of it's days ago, time. and I was like, "That's right." Yeah. Oh man. So we're off the rails,
1: clearly. I mean, always, Monique. It wouldn't be an episode of another fucking horror podcast unless we were already off the rails. So
0: this tracks. Yeah, it tracks. We are nothing if not consistent. (laughs) (laughs) And on that
1: note, would you like to get into our paranormal story this week?
0: Girl, let's fucking get into it. Let's do the fucking paranormal shit, girl. Yeah. Okay. So,
1: I mean, Monique, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. You know I love a
0: fucking theme. You know, girl, girl, let me fucking tell you. I always forget when when the holidays come up, but I was like, is Amy going to do some St. Patrick's Day shit? Kind of. We're going to take a little trip to Ireland this week. I'm obsessed.
1: Fuck yeah. Yes. I mean, who doesn't want to learn about some spooky Irish places, right? Always, always, always. Okay, so sources. Apparently it is pronounced Lep, I have read, but it's spelled like leap. So in case you're looking up these sources. Uh Uh-huh. Lepcastle.net, carpedemarie.com, darktourist.com, adelaidehauntedhorizons.com.au, thelineup.com, irelandbeforeyoudie.com, irishcentral.com, and good old Wikipedia. Love it. So today I'm going to tell you about Lep Castle. Fuck yeah. Girl, yes. Also, in case anyone needs to know the type of person that I am, did I change the spelling of it in my story to how it's phonetically pronounced? Because otherwise I would say leap the entire time. Yes. Yes, I did. So.
0: Did I do the exact same thing in my story? Yes. (gasps) Okay. That
1: makes me feel so much better. I'm like, why (laughs) is my brain like this? Uh, Okay.
0: Fantastic. No, your
1: brain is correct. Yay. You're correct. Nailing it. Always. So, claiming to be the world's most haunted castle on its website, Lepp Castle is located in Coolderry, Ireland, and is believed to have been built around 1250 AD by the O'Bannon clan, though some accounts date the construction as late as the early 1500s. There's evidence that an ancient stone structure, possibly used by the Druids for ceremonial purposes, existed on the site prior to the official construction of the castle, and that the area had been occupied consistently since at least the Iron Age. While it should come as no surprise the castle has seen its fair share of violence, the history of Lepp Castle is definitely bloodier and more tumultuous than most. The castle was originally named Lame Ebani, meaning Leap of the O'Bannons, and the story goes that prior to the construction of the castle, two O'Bannon brothers who were fighting over who would be the chieftain of the clan decided that the only way to settle the matter was with a display of strength and bravery, which to them meant they should both jump off the rocky outcrop where the castle was going to be built and whoever survived the fall would win the right to be chieftain. That's dumb. Which, yeah, sounds like an awful plan to me. Assuming they both even survived, you'd still run the risk of like permanently injuring yourself
0: why we can't just do a rock paper scissors that's not on the table seriously no like I can't play like a chess game or something cards nothing or share there you go hello your siblings all you're told is to fucking share from the second you're fucking born
1: this is just the tip of the fucking iceberg monique with the o'bannon's <laughs> these bitches are wild oh shit While the O'Bannons were the chieftains of Lepp Castle, they still fell under the jurisdiction of the ruling O'Carroll clan. In 1513, and again in 1516, the Earl of Kildare, Gerald Fitzgerald, attempted to seize the castle. He was unsuccessful in both attempts, but managed to partially demolish the castle in the process. Since the O'Carrolls were the ruling clan at the time, Lepp Castle, in its partially destroyed state, was returned to them. The O'Carrolls were known as a particularly fierce and brutal clan, and a murderous rivalry for leadership would continue for generations to come. John O'Carroll was thought to be the first prince of Eli, who lived at Lep Castle. It might be Ellie. I didn't I didn't look this one up. Shit. Sorry. If my pronunciation's terrible, it, it's terrible. You know why.
0: It's fine. We're, we don't know.
1: Thank you. Someone does. Someone might be out there being like, this dumb bitch doesn't know how to pronounce <laughs> Any of these Irish words.
0: I mean, you know, if they're like, fuck you, then like, that's okay. Don't let, I'm sorry. We're we're trying our best. I'm saying fuck myself. So (laughs) we're on the same page, whoever
1: you are. Yes. Yeah. And he seems to be one of the few chieftains who wasn't murdered. He died at the plague and afterwards, Mulroney O'Carroll assumed control for the next 42 years. When Mulroney eventually died in 1532, two of his sons began to fight over who would become the next chieftain of Lep. One of them was a priest, and one day, while holding a mass in the upper hall of the castle for his family, he started the proceedings before his brother arrived, which was considered to be a grave insult. The slighted brother promptly flew into a rage, barged into the chapel, and stabbed his brother with his sword. In a church? In a church, in front of his family. Bad
0: form, fuck. Yes! Literally, my mom wouldn't let me wear fucking blue jeans at church and homeboys just stabbing yes! this dude. What the fuck? Like, no big
1: deal. I went the castle and also you started mass without me. Now you're dead. That's
0: a that's a gross overreaction. Murderer offense. Yes. It's capital offense. Yes. Disproportionate reaction. The Lord does not approve of that. I can guarantee you. Yeah. Hot take, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say JC was not on board. No. Or or whoever the Lord is to you. I don't give a fuck. There, <laughs> there you go. There you go.
1: The priest fell across the altar and died as his family watched in horror. And unsurprisingly, from that point on, that part of the castle became known as the Bloody Chapel. Mm. And that was just the start of Lepp Castle's murderous history of secession. Mulrooney was succeeded by his son, Fergenham who was rumored to have straight up murdered one of his guests at the dinner table before eventually being murdered himself in 1541 by the Omolis.
0: Everyone needs to calm the fuck down. Like, what is happening here? It's
1: so much murder over the course of this family. Like, everyone just kills everyone for power. There were, like, two guys who died of natural causes. Like, it's, it's insane. It's literally insane. His son, Teague, assumed command, but was subsequently killed by his kinsman, Care, who was later slain by Teague's younger brother, William, in
0: 1554. I would hightail it the fuck out of this castle. Right? Immediately. I'm like, I'm going to go to, like, a sheep farm or some shit and just chill out with these sheep and not be fucking murdered. K, thanks. I don't want any part of this. Like, is there a guest house? I'll just live in a guest house, you guys. Like, it's cool. Like, y'all's do your shit that's on you i'll just come for like absence whenever they're fucking ready and then like i'll fuck off to like not be
1: here yes thank you please don't murder me i don't want this castle appreciate it my god William managed to rule for 27 years before he, too, was murdered by some of his O'Connor relatives. I mean, 27 years is a good run, though. I know, right? Longer than most. I feel like most of these guys were literally like the day... Within the week or some shit. Yeah, the day they, <laughs> they got control. They're like, I'm going to kill this guy because fuck him. I didn't. I never liked him. <laughs> he stole my toys. And I, who does he think he is? This is bullshit. Fuck that guy. William was followed by his son, John, who was killed the following year by his cousin, Mulroney. Don't worry, though. John's murder was avenged shortly after by his brother, Charles O'Carroll. And by the year 1600, Charles, too,
0: had been murdered. Oh, my God. How? OK, so I'm guessing the reason they have any heirs is because they're like Catholic and Irish and they just get their fuck on. So they're like, I'll have like 87 kids each. They have. Yeah, at least like five kids each. Because they're like burning through them with all the murders.
1: Right. And then sometimes it's like the cousin will kill them instead or it's like mm-hmm. relations, but not siblings so but yeah there's generally a lot of kids calm the fuck down charles though was supposedly killed in retaliation for killing 150 of his own men holy shit yeah real fucked wait till you hear this shit casual at the time charles was at war with the earl of tyrone and hired the mcmahon clan as mercenaries after they fought for him the o'carrolls held a feast for the mercenaries back at lep castle that night charles along with a few of his trusted men Slit their throats while they slept. This is some red wedding shit. It's such a red wedding shit. I thought that too. With honestly, the priest dying in the bloody chapel, I was like, oh, George R. R. Martin would fucking love this shit.
0: Well, he did say that he he took a lot of it from history, so it could be that he pulled it literally from this. That makes sense. History
1: is pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I got a nice reminder of for the story. <laughs> There are other accounts that say he poisoned them instead, but I also read an account where he poisoned them and then he slit their throats. So take your pick of whichever way these 150 men have died. Spoiler, both suck. Both suck. Yes. Charles claimed that this was because he no longer trusted them, but he might have just been trying to get out of paying them for their services. So... Yeah, he was like, "Thanks for fighting for me. You guys want to come back for a feast? Totally not poisoned. Also, you guys should sleep here. We should have a sleepover. It's going to be super fun. <laughs>
0: We're going to watch Robbie and fish show. <laughs> it's going to be great, guys. It's going to be a blast. You're going to love it. How much are these people getting paid? If you have a fucking castle. You get like they're getting paid like fractions of a cent, right? I have no
1: idea, but I, dude, just fucking pay them or don't hire them. Like, don't murder everybody.
0: Literally. Why do I have to say takes? This? Yeah." Left and right, <laughs> I know. Controversial.
1: <laughs> there are rumors that the murdered soldiers have appeared around the castle. I couldn't find too many like specific instances of this, so I didn't cover it in my main hauntings. But that was mentioned that the soldiers have been seen around Lepp Castle
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in
1: 1649. Lepp Castle was given to Jonathan Darby in lieu of pay for his service to the Cromwellian forces. In 1664, the property was handed back to John O'Carroll for his continued loyalty to Charles I. However, the decision was reversed just three years later by Charles II, and the castle was once again back in the hands of the Darby's. And it seems like the Darby's were far more peaceful in their line of succession, since the property was passed on all the way to Jonathan Darby V, with seemingly no incidents. So they went through a bunch of them.
0: Do you think that they have that they have one of those signs that it's like number of days we've gone without someone being murdered in the castle
1: (laughs) no but they should (laughs) have oh that would have made it for me (laughs) oh my god they really needed one they would have been changing that thing every fucking day though they probably took it down for that reason they were like oh we just don't have time to be doing this again like (laughs) i'm just gonna have to change it again John Darby V maintained the estate until his death in 1802, and having fathered no male children, the castle was passed on to his younger brother, Henry. Henry died in 1823, having fathered zero children, so his brother John went on to inherit the estate. John's eldest son, William, was the next in line, and when he died in 1880, the Lepa estate was passed on to his grandson, Jonathan Charles Darby, since his eldest son had died in 1872 at the age of 45. Which brings us finally to Jonathan's wife, Mildred Darby, formerly Mildred Dill.
0: What a fucking name. I know, I love it. Either one. Love a Mildred.
1: (laughs) So Mildred was the first to record the paranormal happenings at Lep Castle. Stop it, I'm obsessed. Girl, she's like kind of my hero. I kind of want to be her. One of us, obsessed. Yes. So Mildred had an interest in the occult and was known for holding seances in the castle. She also wrote Gothic novels under the pen name of Andrew Mary, and by the year 1910, had published numerous short stories and three well-reviewed novels. Girl, Mildred, I want to be you when I grow up. You're everything I want to be. This bitch. Yes. Work. Get it. Apparently, her husband, an arrogant autocrat with a violent temper, remembered locally for upsetting Mildred by intentionally tracking mud from the stables onto her clean floors. Motherfucker. What an asshole. Take off your fucking boots. Didn't care for her writing and was particularly upset when she published the story titled A House of Horrors. Where's the fucking lie, though? Right? And that's not even about the ghost. That's just about your shitty attitude, Jonathan. (laughs) Although it was published as fiction, and Mildred changed both their names and the name of the castle to protect their reputation, it was obvious to those in the know that the story was yeah, a everyone true. Everyone knew what the fuck. Yep. Yeah. If slightly overdramatic account of the ghostly goings on at Lepp Castle. When Jonathan found out about the publication of the story, he was furious, and it said that he never forgave her for writing it. He had always claimed that the ghost stories which had been told for centuries about their home were nonsense and he had forbidden Millie from speaking of them. He was quoted as having said, the only spirits in this house are in the cellars, which Uh I kind of enjoyed, but also fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. But Mildred was convinced that the estate was haunted by at least 19 spirits. And although she was the first to write down her experiences, supposedly there were many others who had told stories of their ghostly encounters at Lepp long before her which considering the castle's violent and bloody history should really come as no surprise. Now, just when you thought we were kind of done with the violent and bloody history, here's a fun little fact. During the time that Mildred and her husband were living at Lepp Castle, while some construction was being carried out on the estate, the workers made a disturbing discovery. Behind a wall in the bloody chapel, they found an oubliette, a secret dungeon with access only through a trapdoor in its ceiling. Although they believe the original use for these chambers was to store valuables or a place to hide in the event of a siege, it seems the O'Carrolls had used it for a more sinister purpose. They modified this chamber to serve as a small dungeon where prisoners were thrown in, either dead or dying. When the workers discovered it, they were shocked to see a bunch of sharp wooden spikes at the bottom, surrounded by human skeletons. Holy shit. Girl, when they cleared it out, they apparently removed three cartloads of skeletons. Which I don't know how fucking big these carts are, but one source said it was approximately 150 bodies.
0: Holy
1: shit! Yes. So, the whole murdering the mercenaries because they didn't want to pay them thing. The reigning theory is that they like threw them down there and just left them. Yep.
0: Doesn't that smell, right? Well, I would imagine everything smells at this point. Let's be real.
1: It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's stone and hopefully it's like away, but oh, no. A pocket watch from the mid 1800s was found among the remains. And while some believe that meant some of the earlier Darby's had also used it for nefarious purposes, it's possible that it had accidentally fallen inside during an earlier discovery and wanting nothing to do with the mass grave, they had simply left it behind with the bones.
0: <laughs> I mean, that'd be me. I'm like, I'm just going to nope
1: out of here. Which, yeah, I'd be like, oh, I dropped my watch. Yeah, but I don't, that's that's a lot of bones. I'm just going to close this. I don't need the watch. That is
0: above my pay grade. I'm just going to fuck off. It's fine.
1: That's going to be my son and or brother's problem. Thanks. Yep. Now, on to the hauntings. Yes. The priest who was murdered is said to still inhabit what became known as the Bloody Chapel, and people passing the castle at night have reported bright lights streaming out of the upper windows. While this occurrence has been reported since as far back as the Darbys, the reports continue to this day, even though that part of the castle was partially destroyed in a fire in 1922. Oh, shit. In addition to the light, people have also claimed to have seen the priest himself either standing in the doorway, lurking on the stairway below, or leaving the chapel down the northern stairs. Speaking of priests, there is a part of the lepastate known as the priest's house. According to Mildred, guests who stayed there were spooked by the place and said, quote, there is something heavy that lies on people's beds, but it snores, so. <laughs> oh, shit. That's even worse. Yeah. And it snores, and they feel the weight of a great body pressing against them in a room in the priest's house, end quote. She also claimed to have seen a monk with a tonsure and a cowl walking in at one window and out another in the priest's house, as well as a burly man in rough clothes who always pushes a heavy barrel up the back stairs of the wing near the servant's bedrooms. And as soon as he gets to the top, the barrel rolls down and both him and the barrel disappear, which is some Sisyphus shit if I ever fucking heard it.
0: 10,000%. Also, can you imagine spending... Your fucking afterlife doing that? Pushing a barrel upstairs?
1: Absolutely not.
0: No. a Fucking. Mm-mm.
1: That is, that is purgatory or hell or something. I don't know. That's a fucking nightmare. I would imagine. While it didn't seem like Mildred herself had ever spent the night in the priest's house, she did sleep in the charmingly named Murder Hole Room, which oh. also sometimes referred to as the Muckle Hole Room, which... Sounds dirty and is a way more comforting name than murder hole. So (laughs) I would not be referring to it as the murder hole room. Be like, here, this is your room. It's the murder hole room. I just want, what's the murder hole? Oh, I'm going to get into that. Oh girl, okay. Before we do though, Mildred said, quote, the story goes the stain on the floor is the blood of a man stabbed there by his brother. The room has been disused for 50 years or more when we did it up. The stain has been planed off the boards several times, but it always comes again, creeps up from below in a few hours. End quote. I love that shit. I know. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Me fucking too. While it's not clear exactly where the room was located, there are two possibilities that may explain where the name originated. On the south side of the tower, the original entrance had a machicolation, an opening in the floor through which stones, boiling water, hot sand, quick climb, or boiling cooking oil could be dropped on attackers. It's possible that that's what they were referring to as a murder hole, and it was the room located near it. The other possibility is that the room was located on the north side of the castle under the oubliette, since that was also a literal murder hole. One night while staying in that room, Mildred put her hand out of the bed to snap her fingers to call her terrier. When she did, her hand was suddenly grasped by another hand. She described it as a soft, cool hand at a temperature perceptibly below her own. After a few seconds of steady pressure, the other hand let go, and almost simultaneously, she heard a heavy sliding fall, like the collapse of a large body at the foot of the bed. Then in the stillness of the room, she heard a deep human groan and some half-articulated prayers. I doubt she slept in there much longer and apparently wasn't the only one to experience something strange in that room. She said, quote, people have complained before, in fact. We don't generally put anyone there now, end quote. Another spirit said to haunt Lepp Castle is that of the Red Lady. Mildred described her as a tall, dark-haired woman in a historic scarlet silk dress that rustles. According to her, she haunts the Blue Room, which always used to be the nursery, and sobs at the foot of the children's beds. It's believed that the red lady was a woman who was captured and raped by an O'Carroll. The story goes that the baby born as a result was subsequently killed by the O'Carroll because they couldn't afford another mouth to feed. And distraught at the death of her child, the woman then took her own life with the same blade. A guest of the Darby's encounter with the red woman at LEP was published in the Occult Review. Quote, on the 31st of October, I felt that I was awakened by somebody in my room. It was pitch dark and at first I could see nothing. I was wide awake with an extraordinary cold feeling at my heart that rapidly increased in intensity. Almost immediately I felt as much as saw that there was a tall figure in the middle of the room. I could see dimly at first and with increasing distinctness that the tall figure was clothed from head to foot in red and with its right hand raised menacingly in the air. To my utter astonishment, I could see the light which illuminated the figure was from within, having very much the effect of the dark lantern used in a photographer's room. As the figure advanced towards me, the light increased and I could see distinctly that the form was that of a very tall woman holding some sort of weapon, knife or dagger in her hand. I then hurriedly struck a match and lit my candle. As the flame of the matching candle illuminated the room, I looked all around. The room was empty, end quote. There may also be another lady in red haunting Lepp Castle, though she is more commonly referred to as the murdered woman and is believed to be a woman who was killed by one of the O'Carrolls. According to Mildred, this one appears wearing very few clothes with a red cloth over her face, and she screams loudly twice before disappearing. In the book True Irish Ghost Stories by John D. Seymour, Mildred recalled that one night after saying goodnight to her governess, quote, I heard someone come slowly upstairs walk past us to a window at the end of the landing and then with a shriek fall heavily. As she passed, it was bitterly cold and I drew back into the room but did not say anything as it might frighten the governess." There are also the spirits of two young girls that have been seen playing in the main hall and running up the stairwell at Lepp Castle. They are believed to have lived at the castle during the 1600s. One was named Emily and died when she was 11 after falling from the castle's southeastern battlements. People outside the castle have reported seeing a girl falling off the castle roof and disappearing before hitting the ground. The other girl was named Charlotte, and although no one seems to know what happened to cause her death, her spirit is rumored to have been seen with a deformed leg that drags backwards behind her. Mildred herself encountered a ghostly girl, though whether it was Emily, Charlotte, or another spirit entirely is unclear. According to Mildred, quote, another night I was sleeping with my little girl. I awoke and saw a girl with long fair hair standing at the fireplace, one hand at her side, the other on the chimney piece. Thinking at first, it was my little girl. I felt on the pillow to see if she was gone, but she was fast asleep. End quote. There is also a governess who is said to haunt the castle. And although she is reportedly seen less frequently, she is believed to be associated with Emily and Charlotte and is usually seen in the main hall with the two girls. There is also the spirit of an old man who has been seen numerous times sitting peacefully by the fire in the main hall. While nothing seems to be known of his identity, Mildred described him as a little old man with a green cutaway coat, knee breeches, and bright shoe buckles, holding a leather bag in his hand. According to her, he is sometimes seen with a little old woman with skinny hands, long black mitts, an old-fashioned dress, and a big headdress. Both the old man and the woman are also seen sometimes with an old man dressed like a priest with an quote-unquote intensely cunning face. Mildred also said that the green old man tries to stop people, but there was no further explanation to this, and I have no idea what that means. Stop them from interacting with this cunning-faced man. Stop them from entering the room. Just like, stop them? No idea. But now for the most terrifying entity that is rumored to reside at Lep Castle, Mildred referred to it simply as it or the thing, but said her occultist friends would have called it the elemental and claimed to have two encounters with the mysterious entity. She said, quote, suddenly two hands were laid on my shoulders. I turned round sharply and saw as clearly as I see you now, a gray thing standing a couple feet from me with its bent arms raised as if it were cursing me. I cannot describe in words how utterly awful the thing was. It's very undefinableness rendering the horrible shadow more gruesome. Human in shape, a little shorter than I am, I could just make out the shape of big black holes like great eyes and sharp features, but the whole figurehead face, hands, and all was gray, unclean bluish gray, something of the color and appearance of common cotton wool but oh, so sinister, repulsive, and devilish. The thing was about the size of a sheep, thin, gaunt, and shadowy in parts. Its face was human, or to be more accurate, inhuman in its vileness, with large holes of blackness for eyes, loose, slobbery lips, and a thick saliva-dripping jaw, sloping back suddenly into its neck. Nose, it had none, only spreading cancerous cavities, the whole face being a uniform tint of gray. This, too, was the color of the dark, coarse hair covering its head, neck, and body. Its forearms were thickly coated with the same hair, so were its paws, large, loose, and hand-shaped, and it sat on its hind legs. One hand or paw was raised, and a claw-like finger was extended, ready to scratch the paint. Its lusterless eyes, which seemed half decomposed and looked incredibly foul, stared into mine and the horrible smell, which had before offended my nostrils only a hundred times intensified, came up to my face, filling me with a deadly nausea. I noticed the lower half of the creature was indefinite and seemed semi-transparent at least. I could see the framework of the door that led into the gallery through its body, end quote. While the above encounter was published in her story, A House of Horrors, Meldred's final encounter with it was found in a letter to her friend, Sidney Carroll. Quote, on the 25th of November, 1915, two of our servants, knowing the master would be late and that I was driving that afternoon, had invited friends, two soldiers from the barracks at over. They came rather late, and my husband came home early, so the visitors had to be kept out of sight in the lower regions of one of the wings. At 7.15, my husband and I went up to dress for dinner. Whilst dressing, I was startled by a loud yell of terror-stricken male and female voices coming apparently from the hall, and ran out to see the cause. My husband was out ahead of me. At his heels, I passed through the corridor and onto the gallery wing. On the gallery, leaning with quote-unquote hands resting on its rail, I saw the thing the elemental, and smelt it only too well. At the same moment, my husband pulled up sharply about 10 feet from the thing and half turning, let fly a volley of abuse at me. Quote, dressing up a thing like that to try and make a fool of me. And now you'll say I've seen something and I have not seen anything and there is nothing to see or ever was, end quote. This last speech without a pause, begun waving one hand at the thing, then ended up stalking back to his dressing room, still abusing me for trying to give him a fright. As he was speaking, the elemental grew fainter and fainter in its outlines until it disappeared. He never made any inquiry as to the yell that called us both out, and from that day has not mentioned the incident to me. I heard from our servants that when we went to dress for dinner, they had brought their friends just to show them the hall, when all four had suddenly seen and smelt the elemental looking down at them from the gallery. We all got such a turn, we couldn't help letting out a ball, then fled to the servants' quarters where all four were very sick. The two maids had letters necessitating their going home the next day, and they did not return. End quote.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Yep. They're just like, we're good. We're out of here. Fuck this place. Deuces. And after reading Mildred's description of her reaction to seeing the elemental, I don't blame them. She said, quote, I felt every hair on my head separate and move. For my flesh all over my body and scalp crept, and every hair on my head stood straight on end. The absolute weakness that came over me, the seeming cessation of the pulses of life, the grip in heart and brain, the deadly numbness which rendered me incapable of thought, word, or action when I first saw that awful beast. End quote. While the first appearance, origin, and exact nature of the elemental are unknown, there are many theories that have circulated over the years. There have apparently been vague mentions of a troublesome spirit at Lepcastle since quote unquote, very early times, according to the website, which many believed was a reference to the elemental. As for the theories to its origins, some believe the elemental was put there by druids long before the castle was built to protect the sacred site used for initiations and druidic magic. Since there is some evidence that before the castle was built, the site was used for ancient ceremonial purposes. Another theory is that the elemental was placed there as a curse on the castle and believed the most likely culprit was Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, who had attempted to take over the castle on several occasions and was apparently a renowned magic practitioner. Oh, Others say that the elemental is a spirit of an ancient O'Carroll who died in the castle from leprosy, which is said to be the reasoning for the decomposing facial features and appalling stench that accompanies it. And there are even some who blame Mildred herself and believe that it was her dabbling with the occult that either awoke or summoned the elemental. Eventually, in 1922, during the Irish Civil War, the Darby's found themselves at odds with their tenants, who began to boycott the family by refusing to pay their rents. When things escalated, the Darby's fled left castle and went to live with their daughter in Longford. Not long after, an unidentified group of 11 men broke into the castle, and after smashing the furniture into firewood, set the castle ablaze, which destroyed the center and northern portions of the castle. The next morning, the previously untouched southern part was set ablaze again by locals who looted whatever could be saved from the fire. For decades, the castle lay in ruins until in 1974, Peter Bartlett, an Australian with Irish roots, purchased the ruins and set about restoring the castle. Following his death in 1989, the castle was bought by Sean Ryan, a renowned tin whistler player, and his wife, Anne Callahan, a well-known teacher of Irish dance. Sean continued the restoration of the castle, which is still ongoing to this day. Both Sean and the previous owner before him, Peter Bartlett, said they had experienced bizarre poltergeist activity during their restoration efforts. Peter was not specific about what happened, but Sean has spoken about his tools getting moved to the far corners of the room when his back was turned. A carpenter employed by him suddenly left and didn't give a reason for his departure and never came back. Gee, I fucking wonder why. Yep. Sean's restoration efforts were suddenly stopped when the ladder he was working on was pushed away from the wall, forcing him to jump several stories, fracturing his knee. Get the fuck out. Girl, it's ridiculous. Upon resuming work, another accident resulted in a broken ankle. I'd be like, I'm just going to keep
0: hiring people for this. Are there's no, no priest parties happening? Or is like the dead, the dead priest being like, fuck you people, you did this to me? I'm running this motherfucker now. Apparently not.
1: So despite the poltergeist incidents, Sean and Anne say they have never felt the sinister presence of the elemental, but they have reported experiences with many of the same spirits that Mildred did. Sean has said he'd seen a man, most likely the priest, leave the bloody chapel on occasion and wander down to the lower levels of the castle. He has also heard the murdered woman screaming. And even now, his neighbors have called him to inform him of the unexplained light on inside the chapel. Since he has opened his home to visitors and gives tours, he says some of his guests have reported being touched or having someone brush past them. Sean says he has even heard chanting coming from outside the castle and has heard his name being called. A friend of his who was having lunch there one day said both him and another female guest sitting near the fire saw a proud lady in Victorian attire who they believed was the spirit of the governess, walked diagonally across the main hall. After discussing what they both saw, the previously skeptical neighbor has changed his thoughts, according to Sean. The so-called most haunted castle in the world has been visited by paranormal investigators and featured on The Scariest Places on Earth, Most Haunted, Ghost Hunters, and... Ugh, even though I don't want to mention Dildo Baggins at all. Dildo Baggins? Yep. Mm-hmm. Ghost Adventures filmed their 10th season Halloween special at the castle.
0: Oh, God. Yep. Come at me, elemental bro. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I hope they
1: attacked him, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> and pretty much all of them agree Lep Castle is haunted as fuck. And that is the story of the quote-unquote world's most haunted
0: castle, Lep Castle. I mean, I get it. Eight billion people have fucking been murdered there. Yeah, it was a lot of murder. It's not even that they died. They've just been murdered.
1: But apparently you can take tours and Sean is apparently like super cool and super chill. And while he like prefers you email or call him before you show up, literally apparently if you show up at his house and just like knock on the door more than likely he'll be like, yeah, come in. Like, I'll give you a tour right now. He's
0: like, yeah, let me just get some pants on. Let's go. <laughs> I
1: went on TripAdvisor and read the reviews and like so many of the reviews were like, we just showed up and he was like super chill and invited us in and gave us tea and like played his tin whistle for us and like let us chill in his house for like two hours. Was, like, oh shit. This is bananas. This is not being me. I'd be like, get the fuck off my property. Call first. Send a bitch a text. <laughs> Don't just show up. Fuck it. Literally. I've never heard of this place. I hadn't either. And I'm surprised because uh, apparently everyone was murdered here.
0: Clearly. So obviously that's not surprising that like there's the all the bad juju and all the poltergeist and shit there. I mean, I fucking get it. Yeah. I'd be more shocked if they're like a billion people were murdered here and it's just fine. It's everything. You know, great. We have a murder hole room, but it's fine. It's great. I just. I like taking my tea in there sometimes when I want to get away, you know? <laughs> like, that would be fucking much weirder than it's like, this place is haunted as fuck. That's true. This actually just makes sense. This is logical at this point. Yeah, it all it all tracks. I love this story. Thank you so much for it. And I was so... <laughs> when, when I was on my way to record today, I was like, what is the St. Patrick's Day tie-in <laughs> for this story? It's just Ireland.
1: That was really it. It's just... It's a castle in Ireland, yeah, and it's haunted as fuck. And I'll fucking take it all day, every day, girl. I love it. Yeah. So does that mean you also did a theme? Or are you? I did not. No. Okay.
0: No. You know, I'm not a theme person. You were responsible. No, you're the responsible one. You you plan ahead. I'm just like, this is some wild shit. Let's talk about it. No, I love that. I'm
1: like, uh, I need inspiration. What's coming up? What's happening?
0: <laughs> That's what this is, Benny. Let's be real. <laughs> I mean, you're nailing it though. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm glad you enjoyed. Of course. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Now, regale me
1: with some more horrifying murders on top of all of the ones I already just told you
0: about. So there's not murders, Oh, but it is horrifying. Okay. You covered all the murders this time, girl. Like all the murders. I we had
1: enough of them already. Yeah. You can have too many murders. Yeah. I mean, one is too many, but you can, you can have too many.
0: Yep. Exactly. So just a heads up at the top, there are several mentions of rape and rape fantasies. That being said, rape does not happen in the story. Just want to put that out there. So intriguing already. Yep. But just if if that's a thing that, you know, is a trigger for you or even just the word or if you just like needed to have that little spoiler There's going to be a fair amount of uh, rape mentions in this, but no actual rape. I love it. Go with God. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Interesting choice of (laughs) work.
1: Sadly, that was like the least offensive thing that went through my brain. (laughs) That was the
0: it, Monique. I love you. Thank you. I love you. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about Michelle Hadley. Sources, crack.com, Dateline dailybeast.com, buzzfeednews.com, and heavy.com. Michelle Hadley was born in December 1986 to parents Susan and Michael. She was raised in a modest home in Ontario, California with her younger sister, Rebecca. And Michelle was a classic overachiever. She was a good student and an accomplished cross-country runner. And when she graduated from high school, she was offered a scholarship to attend Dickinson College, a well-regarded liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. Shortly after graduating from Dickinson, she married the only boyfriend she had ever had, her high school sweetheart, at 22. But probably surprising to no one, the marriage only lasted a few years before the two divorced. Not long after, in late 2013, Michelle took a crack at online dating, and it was online that the then 26-year-old met 35-year-old Ian Diaz. Ian was a U.S. marshal who lived with his mother, but she didn't see a problem with that, and the two met up for coffee, and Michelle found him attentive and sweet. The pair hit it off and moved very quickly. And when I say they moved quickly, I mean Ian told her that he loved her on the second date.
1: Damn, I
0: Mm -hmm. I can't
1: make comments on this. (laughs) Wait, what? I I can't comment on this
0: i mean here's the i move like lightning fast i move like I, it's like a very long like i date very infrequently so when i do it's because i i'm like oh, like there's like usually a long period of like <laughs> like a like the calm before the storm and then when we're dating i'm like let's fucking go but i've never told anyone that i'm in love with them the second date even for me and i move very fast
1: i for the record this was not me saying this but this was said to me very
0: quickly And then I feel like I said it back just like I I,
1: because, yeah,
0: I've met you. I would tell you that I loved you the second time I saw you. Oh,
1: stop it.
0: I mean, if you talk to all of my friends who I was talking to when we met, I'm certain that like (laughs) half of them must have thought I was a lesbian.
1: They were like, this is it. Monique's going to come
0: out and tell us she's in love with Amy. That's what's happening. Finally, this is why she doesn't date a lot of dudes, not because they're trash, but because she's actually a lesbian. No, (laughs) she was just my second sister. And I found her. That's all. (laughs) Yes. So Ian tells her that he loves her on the second date, but that didn't raise any red flags for Michelle. She was just very flattered and thought that maybe because Ian was older and more experienced, he just knew what he wanted. Michelle said, quote, I think when you're a young girl who's kind of been raised on the fairy tale princess dream, it's very exciting and flattering, end quote. But guess what? It wasn't long before Ian's controlling nature reared its ugly head because, of course, it fucking does. At first, he started controlling Michelle's appearance. Ian wanted her to adopt a sexier look, nagging her to wear crop tops and acrylic nails and even pierce her belly button. Oh, no. And like this is 2013, like the piercing, the belly button piercing is like out, right? Like it's been out for like 10 years.
1: I feel like, yeah, that was big in the 90s. I totally wanted one in the 90s. Trust me. I was into it, but then I grew up and I was like, I'm glad I didn't make that choice.
0: It's also like another thing you have to like. Maintain. Yeah. Yeah. Do jewelry with. It's like, you know, it wasn't for me. I
1: wanted to be a troll doll, Monique, obviously. I wanted the gem (laughs) in my belly. Love me
0: some trolls. That didn't even occur to me. Um, I could see that. I can respect that. Then he pressured Michelle to leave her job and take a $20,000 pay cut for a marketing position at his quote-unquote favorite place, Disneyland, where he'd also formerly worked. And in hindsight, Michelle believed that he pressured her to take the job to ensure that his ex-colleagues could keep tabs on her. Michelle, like, all of this is such red flaggy. All of this is
1: so bad,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just the love bombing of it all. Like, I don't, I don't think in 2013 that was part of the cultural conversation. No. I, I think, think we're so. still a few years away from that. But like, ugh. it's that thing of just being like, it's so obvious now, you know. Michelle also suspected that Ian was spying on her online activity and had even put a tracking device on her car. Because every time she drove a few miles outside of the zone of her home, work, or school where she was taking night classes at Chapman University to obtain her MBA, he would call her and ask her where she was. And again, while these were obvious red flags, Michelle ignored them because she loved him. She wanted to make him happy, so she went along with whatever Ian wanted, fearing that he would leave her if she didn't. Then, in December 2014, for her 28th birthday, Ian whisked Michelle away to New York City. He took her to the top of the rock and proposed with a big haloed diamond ring. And she said yes. But Ian's influence was intensifying. She didn't just love him, she felt addicted to him. After the proposal, Ian revealed that he had a cuck kink and for months asked Michelle to have sex with other men while he watched. What? Girl, If everyone is on board and everyone's consenting, live your fucking cuck life. I don't give a fuck. But guess what? Michelle is not fucking into this and she declined repeatedly, even threatening to break up with him if he continued to ask. But like a good gaslighter, Ian told her that she was overreacting and he just kept asking. Then on Valentine's Day, Michelle, worn down by Ian's persistence, took an over-the-counter nighttime cold medicine, and a few shots of fireball for courage and gave in but of course it wasn't enough that michelle had sex with another man a stranger whom ian had solicited on craigslist <gasps> grawla no
1: no 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 absolutely not you don't even fucking know this
0: guy no dude no it's not even like well like jerry's pretty cool and i know that he's clean and whatever no and you guys are you guys have like a vibe or something no yeah Oh, no. So she has sex with a fucking rando that he found on Craigslist in front of Ian. Ian also filmed the entire encounter. Oh, I just got chills because I hated that so much. Did she consent to the filming? Of course not. Uh. The following morning, Michelle was sick with regret and begged her fiance to destroy the tape. And not only did he not, he allegedly told her, quote, No one put a gun to your head. End quote. Except you did, essentially. Like, in consent corner, harassing someone and wearing someone down until they say yes is not consent. Spoiler. Yes. That's why, like, now the verbiage is enthusiastic consent, not... (sighs) Okay. That's not consent. That's begrudging. Yes. Spoiler. That's like, will you leave me alone if I do this? Will you shut the fuck up? Will you leave me alone? That's... Which also, like... Why do you want that from someone? I d- don't, don't you want someone to be like, fuck yeah, I will fuck I will fuck every guy in front of you and fuck, <laughs> fuck yeah. And he's like, yeah. Like I was like, and we're both gonna love it. Yeah. Like don't be like, oh, okay. Because there's because ultimately it's a control thing, obviously, right? Yes. It's they don't want someone who's into it. They want to control them and humiliate them and make them feel like shit. Ugh. Ugh. The couple got a Yorkie together, who they named Chewy. And in May of 2015, the couple moved into a brand new two-story condo in downtown Anaheim. Michelle came up with the $14,400 down payment, and the couple took out a mortgage together. But as soon as they moved in together, their relationship somehow turned even more toxic and more paranoid and more physically frightening for Michelle. The couple were living together only two months before Michelle packed up her Jetta with whatever possession she could fit in it and showed up at her parents' doorstep. While the move had freed Michelle physically, it marks the beginning of a year-long battle over their condo, where Ian continued to live while Michelle still paid half of the mortgage. Their attempts over email to come to a financial agreement over the property became increasingly bitter. The two hired lawyers, but shit got personal. And at her most enraged point, Michelle said she blacked out and cranked out a series of disturbing fire and brimstone emails complete with biblical references, threatening to burn down their condo with the dog inside. Yeah. Like she goes like kind of off the deep end. In an email sent to Ian on September 10th, 2015, which began, quote, I have been patient and my patience is at an end, end quote. It continued, quote, your sins are many including defiling me and my family with your wicked and evil sexual acts, your financial coercion and irresponsibility, your gluttony, your greed, your lust, your sloth, your wrath, your envy, and most of all, your pride. I will bring the full force of the law and the word of God against you to judge you. End quote.
1: Damn. Mm -hmm. That is some biblical shit. All the sins.
0: She named all of them, girl.
1: Yeah, (laughs) just... Right down the list there.
0: Which, speaking of, did you see that company XIV is doing seven, seven sins? <gasps> yes, you sent me the email, and I saw it. Oh, my God. Okay. We just needed a moment of levity. Oh, my God. I can't wait. It looks so good. It looks so good. <gasps> okay. I've, I was told that that's their best show. It better be.
1: <laughs> it's all the sins. Come on.
0: I mean, you know. So, Michelle signed off that email with, quote, so let it be written, so let it be done, End quote. Another email described the condo as, quote, that which does not belong to you, but belongs to the Holy Trinity, end quote. What? Okay. It's pretty off the fucking deep end, like full disclosure. Like, you know, she also wrote, quote, please explain to your real estate attorney that God's law is above all laws, including the law of man, end quote.
1: Mm. Oh. I, get, I get where you feel about that, but like, no, the law... The actual law takes precedence in this situation.
0: Michelle later claimed the emails had been written during a fugue state and were a byproduct of Ian's abuse. Michelle claimed Ian was unfaithful and abusive. Ian denied her allegations and, lo and behold, accused Michelle of being the abusive cheater of the two. Ian claimed that he was so alarmed by her email that he applied for a restraining order against Michelle and wrote in his petition, quote, "...because of her emotional instability." history of fits of rage, I fear for my safety, end quote. The request for the restraining order was dismissed a few weeks later. However, despite her strong words, Michelle became increasingly fearful of Ian, convinced that he was using his law enforcement connections because remember, he's a US marshal, to track her and intimidate her into giving him the condo. She recalled spotting SUVs identical to Ian's without license plates at various locations far from Anaheim. She told security officers at her job and school that she was afraid of him. After she reported her concerns to Chapman University, school security barred him from campus. Then, at the end of 2015, their lawyers eventually compromised and the two parties reached a settlement. Ian was allowed to stay in the condo, but had six months to get his own mortgage. If he were not able to do so, then he would have to sell the condo and split any profits with Michelle. While Michelle knew she stood to lose most of her down payment, she believed that it was worth it and started to move on with her life. She started dating again, and was working towards an MBA at Chapman University. On January 2nd, 2016, Ian met and granted, January 2nd is like just a few months later. Ian met a woman named Angela Connell online, and the two immediately jumped into a committed relationship. On January 29th, 27 days after a meeting— Ian proposed to Angela bro, and she accepted. Bro, relax. I know. Get to know a fucking person. Give it a year, minimum. You know, it's, yeah, a year, a year. Give it a month. Even February is longer than that. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Two weeks later, the happy couple vacationed to Boise, Idaho, and Angela told her fiance and his parents that she was pregnant. When she got back to California, they decided Angela should move into Ian's home, AKA the condo at the center of the bitter dispute between him and Michelle. So on February 19th, Angela moved in and the couple discussed the pregnancy and her lack of insurance. So they decided that they should get married sooner rather than later. Three days later, Angela and Ian went to the courthouse and tied the knot. But the condo issue wasn't resolved and the six months deadline was approaching and the emails kept coming. On May 22, 2015, Ian received an email that read, quote, You told me I was your first love, but you did not treat me like the precious, perfect treasure I am. You have sinned against God, and I want my power back because it belongs to us, the daughters of God. End quote. Then Angela began receiving emails. The emails were long and rambling, complete with biblical imagery, saying that her husband didn't love her and that Michelle was his one true love and that Ian's cheating on her, that he manipulates women and that Angela had better get out of the picture soon before he hurts her. Then on May 31st, Angela was inundated with emails. While they were sent from multiple email addresses, they were always signed Jason Ray. One email read, quote, Be warned, Angela, you've lost. I'm going to end you. You will suffer. I will pray for you. End quote. Then Angela got an email with the subject line, die. It read, quote, I hope you are scared of death tomorrow. Be prepared. Don't sleep. Be watchful of the daughters of God. We will steal your child and we will watch as it dies. End quote. And several of these emails also came attached with pictures of corpses and aborted fetuses.
1: Jesus Christ. Girl. I don't want to click on that attachment.
0: No, definitely not. And again, while the emails are coming from different email addresses, they all fit the same volatile, erratic, biblical patterns as Michelle's emails to Ian. So Angela was convinced that there was only one person who could be doing this. So the following morning on June 1st, 2016, Angela filed a restraining order against Michelle Hadley. The restraining order read, quote, Ms. Hadley has been emailing me for over one week, repeatedly threatening my life, my marriage, my safety, and slandering my husband, end quote. But Michelle claimed that she never sent any emails to Angela. Not only that, she claimed that she didn't even know Angela Diaz. A week or so before Angela filed her restraining order, Michelle claimed that something weird was happening with her accounts. She'd gotten an email from Google informing her that a Gmail address she'd never started had been shut down. Then she received several automated messages from Microsoft alerting her that her primary email was now being used as the recovery contact for a handful of new Outlook addresses. It seemed like someone was creating new accounts and trying to tie them back to her, but it is unclear what Michelle did, if anything, in response to these emails. A judge ordered Michelle to cease all contact with Angela and Ian, but the emails continued. An email sent to Angela on June 6th read, quote, you will pay for this. I hope to God you're ready for the pain I will show you, end quote, end quote. Burn in the fiery pits of hell tonight. As by God's law, you will be hurt, end quote. Three weeks after the restraining order was filed, Michelle arrived home to her parents' house on a quiet cul-de-sac in Ontario, California, from a date to find police officers waiting for her. In her driveway, they told her they had a warrant to search her phone, tablet, and laptop. She handed over her devices and passcodes, and after the officers looked through her email activity, they put Michelle in handcuffs and arrested her for violating the restraining order and placed her in a holding cell in the Anaheim detention facility. Her parents posted bond and got her out. Then things escalated. In June, someone posted a Craigslist ad under the personal encounters section with the heading Rape Fantasy M-4-W-O-C, which for those who don't know, M4W is man for woman. Below was a violent photo of a particularly clothed woman with a man restraining her head and mouth with his hands. The ad read, quote, I'm looking for women who have fantasies about being raped, forced to perform. I've done this before with a couple of ex-girlfriends and found it very intense and exciting. We would agree on the limits before meeting and we could meet in a safe location like a hotel. End quote. The poster then goes on to say that he's sane and a, quote, clean cut professional, end quote. On June 13th, someone replied to the Craigslist post saying, quote, I am, have been dying to have a rape fantasy occur, watched while walking my dog, follow me to the door and forcing me into my condo. I am 30, tall, gorgeous, and ready, end quote. The responder provided the address for Angela and Ian's condo, then added, quote, I have a Yorkie I walk every night. Say, 8 p.m., come find me, end quote. Angela contacted Anaheim police detective Michael Kuna, a veteran detective who specializes in internet crimes involving children and sexual offenses, and told him that a man showed up at her door expecting to enact a rape fantasy with her. The Diazes told police they sent the man away, but other men followed, all invited by email responses to rape fantasy ads. Six days later, Detective Kuna received a phone call from Angela Diaz, who said another man was traveling to her house from San Diego, believing that she had contacted him through a rape fantasy advertisement. The officer called the man and left a message saying that the response to his ad was fraudulent and no one showed up that night. Important to note, I just want to put out there, that that man eventually wrote to Angela to apologize, saying that he thought the message was legitimate because... These guys aren't actual rapists. They just have a fantasy and they want everyone on board and everyone consenting to it. please consent to it, yes. Right. An affidavit stated that Ian and Angela also discovered the responder to the ad had sent photos of Angela obtained from her Instagram. On June 21st, another man who was landing at LAX allegedly made contact with Angela Diaz through a rape fantasy ad. Again, Kuna called the man and warned him whatever messages he might have received were fake. Then on June 24th, granted, this is like days apart. This is like three days, six days, like it's back to back to back to back. Then on June 24th, Angela called 911 to report an attempted rape in her garage in the alley behind her condo. The cops who responded to the call found a very distraught Angela with abrasions on her neck and a torn shirt. And the police were certain that Michelle was behind this. So the Anaheim PD arrested Michelle outside of her parents' home. Angela reported that during the night Michelle spent in jail, She received no threatening emails. Michelle's parents posted her bond and she was released before 11 a.m. And within the hour, Angela received a threatening email, supposedly from an address connected to Michelle, warning she'd be punished and raped. Angela told law enforcement that she was afraid to go outside and she's afraid for her life and that she just feels like taking down all of her social media profiles and uprooting her whole life and just go into hiding. On July 11th, two weeks after Michelle posted bail, a new rape fantasy ad appeared on Craigslist. Someone responded to the ad and once again directed the man who placed the ad to the home of Ian and Angela Diaz. And granted, like, while all of this shit's going on, the the situation with the condo is still in the middle of this clusterfuck. The bank had not approved Ian and Angela's mortgage. So as per the terms of their agreement, Ian had to sell the condo and split the money with Michelle. But Ian made it clear that not only was he not going to move out, He's also not going to sell the condo. Like, go fuck yourself, apparently. On July 12th, the following day, Michelle filed a breach of contract lawsuit against Ian, all while being under investigation for cyber stalking. Then, the following day, Angela contacted the police, saying that there was yet another man outside of her condo trying to rape her. When police arrived, they found a 17-year-old boy who said that he was responding to a Craigslist ad. So, Shit is escalating and police get a warrant and once again arrest Michelle Hadley. But this time it's much more serious. This time Michelle is charged with stalking, making criminal threats and six felony counts of attempted forcible rape for directing those men to Angela's door. Because of the severity of the charges the judge sets bail at $1 million. Not only that Michelle is looking at life in prison if convicted. So for those of you who don't know, to post bail, you have to come up with 10% of the bail in cash, meaning her parents needed to produce $100,000 in cash to get their daughter, who they believe is totally innocent, out of jail. Michael and Susie had a conversation with their daughter. They told her that they had enough money to post bail or to get a good attorney, but not enough money for both. So her parents made the difficult decision to opt for the lawyer and to leave their daughter in jail, which is a smart choice. is the smart move. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's what you do. I would have been like, leave me here. I'm good. I'll figure it out. Like, call that guy.
0: And that, that's essentially, that's what Michelle says. And like, she's like, you know, it's all good. Do like, do that. And granted, Michelle's not a hardened criminal. She's a petite MBA student who describes herself as a goody two-shoes with princess and fairy tale fantasies. Multiple articles nationwide covered this bizarre stalking story and somehow the articles circulate around the prison. So inmates started coming to Michelle's cell to harass her and even one of them slipped a death threat note under her door. Michelle said, quote, there were mornings when I would wake up and I would open my eyes and I would see the white jail cell wall and I would think, okay, I'm gonna wake up a second time. This is just a nightmare. And it wasn't, it was for real. And I was starting to feel like I was slipping away, end quote. During this time, in addition to looking for a great lawyer for their daughter, Michelle's parents decided to do their own investigation, trying to gather evidence to show she couldn't have been online at the moment some of these harassing emails and Craigslist messages were sent. They pulled her school records to show that she'd been in class and medical records to show that she'd been hospitalized briefly, aka indisposed during times she was suspected of harassing Angela. Not only that, there were emails that were alleged to have been sent by Michelle at times when she had no access to her accounts or devices because they had been seized by the police. And apparently the Anaheim PD never gave Michelle her laptop, phone, or tablet back, which is some bullshit because that stuff's expensive. Right? If you don't want to give me my shit back, could you give me like some other shit back? What the fuck? Yeah. Give me a fucking credit at the Apple store. I'll go get a fucking phone right now. Thank you. They hired defense attorney Michael Giusti and showed him their findings. And while it was compelling evidence, this wasn't his first rodeo. He knew that the only way the prosecution was going to back off was if their own evidence worked against them. And on September 30th, 2016, Ian Diaz arranged to speak with the Anaheim police detective assigned to Michelle's case. Then, according to court records, Ian told the detective that he had uncovered several disturbing lies about Angela. Including that she had faked her pregnancy and that he believed his wife had framed Michelle Hadley.
1: Boom. Girl. Yep. Fuck. Poor Michelle.
0: So it looks like after this, detectives were like, hmm, why don't we do our fucking jobs and run like, run where are those IP addresses coming from, for instance? And lo and fucking behold, they discover that the threatening emails hadn't come from Michelle's IP addresses, but IP addresses of the Anaheim condo, Angela's cell phone, and Angela's father's home in Phoenix. Jesus. Like, growl. Come on. Another thing that always bothered law enforcement was the report Angela made alleging that the man had tried to rape her in the garage of her condo. Thing is, you have to go in the alley to get to the garage, and the garage doesn't have an address on it. So how did this alleged assailant actually find Angela? Also, surveillance cameras in the area showed no man answering the property that day. And not only that, Angela claimed that she had viciously fought off her attacker. But when you compare her story to the, like, pretty light injury she had when the police showed up, the whole thing starts to look sus as fuck. The week after Ian came forward, an Orange County deputy district attorney, Richard Zimmer, visited Michelle in jail, reached through her cell bars, and shook her hand and apologized. After spending 88 days in jail for crimes she did not commit, Michelle Hadley was released while investigators shifted their attention to Angela. And even though Michelle was released, she had not only not been publicly exonerated, but was also inexplicably made to wear an ankle monitor. That's fucked up. I don't know why, because it's like, hi, you know it's not me. What the fuck? and was also instructed by the DA's office not to publicly comment on her volatile relationship with Ian Diaz, even though news of the crime was literally national news. It was all over the fucking country.
1: Like, I want to clear my name. Like, I'm not fucking guilty. This bitch framed me. Like, I will fucking tell everybody. I'm not shutting my mouth about shit. This fucking douchebag and his fucking bitch of a
0: wife. Like, no. Yeah, so she does what she's told for three months, but three months after her release... She she's on that train, girl. She's fed up of waiting and scarred by the heavy ankle monitor that she's still fucking wearing three months fucking later. And Michelle told prosecutors that if they didn't announce her innocence soon, she was going to go to the media and spill the tea about all the investigative steps that law enforcement just fucking skipped right over in order to lock her up and protect one of their own. Because again, remember, Ian was a U.S. marshal after all. Uh.
1: I'm glad you keep reminding me because I keep
0: somehow forgetting. <sighs> Awful. I mean, yes. Oh, God. On January 6, 2017, Angela Maria Diaz was arrested. And three days later, Michelle Hadley was exonerated by the Orange County District Attorney's Office. Angela was charged with 10 felonies, including kidnapping, perjury, grand theft, and false imprisonment, as well as 22 counts of misdemeanor falsely reporting a crime to Anaheim police. No charges were brought against Ian and he alleged that Angela was the sole mastermind and participant in an elaborate scheme to portray herself as a victim. A two-month-long preliminary hearing was held, which painted Angela Diaz as a skilled con artist with a history of fooling former friends and romantic partners. And girl... You are not fucking ready for the shit that came out during this fucking hearing. Oh my God, tell me. During the preliminary hearing, Detective Michael Kuna testified that Angela had fooled another ex boyfriend who also works in law enforcement. Jason Rayburn, which you may recall was the signature of the threatening emails, was Jason Ray, was a state highway patrol officer. The couple met at a bar and were struck by how much they had in common, namely that Rayburn was a cop and Angela claimed to be an attorney. And Jason described the early days of their relationship as quote-unquote, too good to be true. Shortly after they began dating, though, Angela told her boyfriend that she had been diagnosed with cervical cancer and that her living situation had fallen through. And because Jason doesn't appear to be a piece of shit, he invited Angela to live with him at his Huntington Beach residence, even rearranging his house because of Angela's chemotherapy treatments. Wow.
1: Girl, don't lie about cancer
0: like that's don't don't do that ever. Don't do that ever. There's no reason to do it.
1: No, I'm I'm a fucked up person and I wouldn't do that because I would be afraid that then I would like get cancer because karma would be like, "Okay, you're going to say some shit. Watch this.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know someone who definitely did this. (gasps) Mm-hmm. Who like, so like their boyfriend wouldn't break up with them. Oh my God. Why do you want to be with somebody who wants to break up with you? Just fucking let them go. And it was like, she was like a more popular person in school and I was not. And I was like, if this is what being popular is, like, I'm good. Like I have a soul and I'm good. It would never occur to me to do this because I'm not an awful human being. No. But apparently not everyone got that fucking memo. Jason told police that Angela shaved her head and displayed photos of herself getting chemotherapy. She also started drinking heavily, which concerned Jason, as you really shouldn't be getting wasted on the regular if you're going through chemo. And that's when Jason started to suspect that Angela wasn't actually sick. So he had a friend stop by their house one day while Angela was supposedly scheduled for chemo. But guess what? Angela had never left the house that day. Jason and his friends were like, okay, this is sus as fuck, So they Google searched the phrases chemotherapy and cervical cancer and found the exact same images that she had been sending them. Images she claimed were of herself in treatment.
1: They're like literally on page one of the image search. Yes, it's literally that. She didn't even like flip a few pages back. Like maybe
0: they won't find this one. Go to like 20. No, no, no. It's literally like the first like couple.
1: (sighs) Amateur hour, first of all. Literally. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But also awful. Awful. Don't fucking do that. Don't do, just don't. Like, oh God. This wildest fuck discovery led to a videotaped intervention where Jason and a circle of friends confronted Angela about her fabrication. And one of the people who led the intervention was Mary Bukovskis, who befriended Angela while Angela was a paralegal at a law firm. You see, paralegal, not a lawyer, like she had told Jason. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. At the beginning, Angela allegedly told Mary that her boyfriend Jason was abusing her. Bitch. Curl. And like, I absolutely know someone like this who is like a pathological liar and just has to be the victim. And people will initially believe it because, like, when someone's like, hey, my boyfriend's abusing me, like, you believe them. Yeah. And then you realize, like, no. There are awful people who just say shit for attention and to get shit. Yeah. And then that's the reason why, like, piece of shit people are like, see, you can't believe women because of people like this. And you're like, ah! You're ruining it for the rest of us. Yes. You're ruining it for the people who are actually going through shit. Also, like, that's not something to be, I don't wanna say proud of, but it's like, to be like, oh, by the way, my wife is abusing me. Like, you know? Yes. No, like, people, that's a, usually a very, like, traumatizing... Deeply traumatizing, like, thing that people don't really talk about. Yeah. No, especially not at, like, Mary's son's Little League games that Angela would attend, and she'd go out to eat with them afterwards and the rest of the Bukowski's family. Mary said, quote, We did a lot together because I felt so badly for her because she didn't have a family here, and her boyfriend was beating the shit out of her, and we were always telling her, You need to leave him. Angela also told Mary that she had cancer, but Mary too became suspicious when one, Angela always brought a bottle of wine to drink at Mary's home. And two, Angela never exhibited any side effects from chemo, which kind of a big fucking deal. Then Mary called the hospital where Angela claimed to have been getting chemo treatments, telling the hospital operator that she wanted to meet her friend there and keep her company. And guess the fuck what? The staff had no record of any patient with that name there. Mary said, quote, that really cemented it for me. I think it was then that I told Jason, I knew she was full of shit, end quote. Later on, she helped Jason pack up Angela's belongings and her things were already out of the house before the intervention began sometime in 2014. While packing up her things, Mary found a journal she had bought as a gift to Angela. When she flipped through the pages, she found writings of how much Angela was in love with Jason and how devastated he was going to be when she died. Like, truly sick, narcissistic shit. Ugh.
1: Just, ugh. I have no words for
0: this. During the intervention at Jason's home, Jason was the first to speak, telling Angela, quote, we know you don't have cancer, end quote, to which Angela allegedly replied, quote, yes, I do, end quote. Jason continued, quote, and we know you're not an attorney, end quote. Angela responded, quote, yes, I am. You want to see my papers? You want to talk to my mom? End quote, which like is like such a juvenile, like what? That's like so,
1: yeah, so childish. Like uh, I'm telling the truth. You can call my mom. My mom will vouch for me. Like, oh,
0: Angela, come on. Then things took an uncomfortable turn when Mary asked to see Angela's chemotherapy port, but Angela refused to take off her jacket. Angela immediately moved out and her friendship with Mary ended. Mary said, quote, I missed the person that I thought she was. And that's what really killed me because my little boy would pray for her. He goes to a Catholic school and he was in second or third grade then. He would have the whole school praying for her to beat cancer, end quote. Oh. Like, ugh. I just, there's there's not even a place in hell for people like this, honestly. This is so fucked. It's so fucked. Like it's, it, yeah. Like it's just, it, it's not like, you know, blood and murder and all this shit, but it's just so fucked and disturbing because someone is fucked and needs attention and needs to feel like a victim. Yeah. Get a fucking hobby. Work Work a job. That takes up a lot of your fucking time, girl. Let me tell you. <sighs> just like do a puzzle and leave people alone. Just, it's... <sighs> Girl, seriously, truer words have never been spoken. And I don't fuck with puzzles. And I'm, I'm suggesting this. You do not fuck with a puzzle. Just, no. just give it a shot. I'm just saying. Fast forward to May 2016. Angela claims that she's pregnant again after allegedly losing the first baby due to the stress of being harassed by Michelle. The following month, she presents Ian and both of their families and friends with sonograms showing fraternal twins. Oh my God. Girl. <sighs> uh, okay. The sonogram printouts had Angela Diaz's name, a doctor's name, the date of the ultrasound, and the name of the hospital. Yet through July and August, even as Angela allegedly showed no physical signs of pregnancy, she complained of cramps and back pain and nausea. And she shopped for baby clothes and furniture and other baby items. And Ian would later discover through, you guessed it, Google images that Angela's sonograms were fake and that ones appearing identical to hers were sold on Etsy for $7.50 apiece. Girl. Oh my God. The prank ultrasounds printed on Kodak photo paper were customizable with names and other information like the name of the doctor, the hospital, and the date of the ultrasound. When Ian confronted her, Angela was adamant that the sonograms were real. That night on September 9th, Ian gave Angela a ride to an Irvine hotel that her mother had reserved and paid for. The following morning, Ian discovered multiple used pregnancy tests, which appeared positive in two boxes under the bathroom sink. The tests, however, were, quote, noticeably altered by the use of pens that were also in the boxes, end quote.
1: I feel like that's something you could buy on Craigslist. Am I crazy? Like, I feel like this bitch has used Craigslist for everything else. You couldn't find somebody who was pregnant who was willing to piss on a fucking pregnancy test for you. (laughs) I mean,
0: literally. Okay. Literally. After investigators discovered that the phony email accounts carried IP addresses linked to Angela's home and devices, they also found a Word document on her computer that was a pitch for a lifetime movie titled A Darkness Within, the Angela Diaz story, and another pitch that was named Daughters of God, the Angela
1: Diaz story. Oh my god. You're right. The narcissism is just out of
0: control. It's it's next level. It's it's like like I'm literally speechless. Yes. Also, this is so much fucking work. Right me too.
1: I was like, I don't know if I just I'm lazy or what, but this just seems like more effort than it's
0: worth. Like, what are you really getting out of this? The control. I know. And and the, the victimhood of like, oh my God, poor you. This is happening to you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You're so brave. You're so strong that, you know, you're going through all of this. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. In October 2017, Angela Maria Diaz pleaded guilty to 10 felony charges, including kidnapping, false imprisonment, perjury, and forgery. And if you'll remember, Michelle faced a maximum of life in prison for the crimes that Angela had actually committed. But because we can't have nice things, Angela struck a deal with the prosecutor and was given only five years in prison. What? No, no, no. No, no, no. Commence table flipping now. That is way too little. Absolutely way too little. At her sentencing, Judge Nicholas S. Thompson said, quote, Miss Diaz does need not only punishment, but does need help. She appears to be, in the court's view, devoid of any sense of empathy or compassion to others or any kind of realization as to the impact that one's actions have on another person's life, end quote. I mean, that's putting it very mildly. Yes, Ian had his marriage to Angela annulled six months after marrying her, stating in his petition that had he known about, quote, what appears to be lying at a pathological level, end quote, he never would have married her. During her incarceration, Michelle Hadley lost her apartment, her job, and had to drop out of school. The year following her release, Michelle struggled to find work. Employers who initially showed interest would then ghost her something she was certain came as a result of Googling her name. Michelle's attorney, Michael Justy, told the Daily Beast, quote, is trying to put her life back together. It is hard. She was exonerated, but people still Google her and think she did it, end quote. Since her exoneration, Michelle obtained her MBA and found a good marketing job for a beauty company. She moved across the country to New York to live with her sister and escape Orange County, where she had become infamous. By the time Michelle was released, Ian had finally sold the notorious Anaheim condo, which they'd purchased for about $470,000. Michelle said she didn't see a cent from the $499,000 sale. Michelle filed a lawsuit against the city of Anaheim, alleging the police failed to properly investigate her case, leading to her false imprisonment. The complaint also listed Angela Diaz and Ian Diaz, claiming that without their statements to the police she wouldn't have been falsely imprisoned. In 2021, the city of Anaheim, without admitting liability... Of course. Of course. Agreed to pay Michelle $1,795,000, which work. That's literally the least they can fucking do. I was going to say, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Ian Diaz and Angela Diaz reached separate settlements with Michelle. However, Angela's defense attorney, Allison Margolin alleged that Angela wasn't alone in this plot and that Ian deserved a closer look. I guess federal prosecutors agreed. They too had questions about Ian's involvement and investigated his role in the scheme. And in May of 2021, a grand jury indicted Ian Diaz on charges of conspiracy to commit cyberstalking, cyberstalking, and perjury. He pleaded not guilty and bonded out of jail to await trial. And while I can't find any information on whether this has even gone to trial yet, the last I heard was that the U.S. Marshal's office had placed Ian on unpaid administrative leave. Michelle has said that she wants to use her experience with the justice system's cruelty and her privilege of being exonerated to do something about the, quote, blue wall of silence, end quote. And while sometimes she's able to cast her traumatic experience in a positive light, saying that it made her stronger and more resilient and gave her more depth and maturity, it has also made her more cynical and distrustful of others. While there's still the sweet goody-two-shoes part of her who wants to find love and have a family, Michelle says that now there's another part, a part that says, quote, careful, because people are dangerous. The world is dangerous end quote. And that is the horrific, almost impossible to believe story of Michelle Hadley, who was wrongfully accused of harassing and stalking a woman who was actually stalking herself.
1: It's so, so crazy. So full disclosure, this was included in one of the Eileen Ormsby's books I read. I think I did the countdown story from that. So I knew like, some details of it but that was fantastic and I did not I did, I don't think I like knew the whole the scope of
0: it and that it's like oh like she's been doing this for fucking ever
1: yeah or any of her like lying about the cancer and shit yeah I didn't know any of that wild but it was one of those things where in the middle I was like oh don't say anything because I know who I'm supposed to think is the the villain here is not actually the villain so it's like keep keep your mouth shutting me just don't say anything <laughs> Uh, that was amazing though. And you did a fucking great job with that. I really, I didn't know anything about him getting indicted or anything. I thought he got off scot-free, so.
0: Thank you. You know, it's very interesting because when I read everything and looked at everything, his abusive behavior is really not mentioned in kind of anything except like one article. It was like, I think the Buzzfeed news article. Everything else was like, they did get along. She accused him of cheating. Like, it's not like. yeah that's
1: what I thought it was too. I didn't know it was like that crazy. And that he like filmed her without
0: her consent and like the whole cuck fantasy thing. Yeah. That's all in the court transcripts. So like when I saw the dateline originally, I was like, okay, like he's a fucking moron who just married like some hot chick and she's a psycho. Yeah. Like, and she did this completely on her own. And then when I, you know, dug deeper and then found like, no, he was like horribly abusive and controlling. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, It's way more probable that he has something to do with this also. Yeah. Than not. So I don't know. Uh, All I know is that, you know, that he got indicted.
1: Stay tuned and find out. Stay tuned. Well, I'm glad you did this story because I feel like I had it in the back of my head as an option, but I I feel like you did a much better job than I would have done covering it. So
0: (laughs) I'm very glad. Well, you would have researched it. So that is true. (laughs) You know, that is true.
1: Thank you like, no, thank you, Monique. That was wonderful. And thank you. That was like horrifying, but not too horrifying.
0: Sure. Yeah. But it's just that thing, like imagine. (sighs) And it sucks too, because like she, because initially with the emails, I'm like, did she write these fucking emails? Like the original ones. And then it was the thing of like, she doesn't want to talk about it on camera, but like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. Yikes, girl. Like not best look. Yep. And like, girl, like I've never written a a fire and brimstone email like that, but have I like fucking wilded out on people? Absolutely. Like for sure. And just the thought of like, someone's fucking with you. Like your, your abusive romantic partner is like fucking with you and fucking with your money and fucking with your property. And you're like, fuck you. Like you go nuts. And then you like are arrested for like cyber stalking someone and allegedly like Sending people to have rape vanity. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Ugh. And the thing that I didn't really understand is how they looked at her devices when they confiscated them and they're like, oh, these are coming from you. Yeah. That was what I didn't get either. But and I looked and I don't know if they're just like, that's your name, that's your name, whatever, fuck you. Like it's clearly you. If they just weren't doing their job or what. Because I looked for things and I was like, is and I tried to go into like, oh, is like a VPN. Which like, yeah, like she, but I was like, no, like it wouldn't show up in your fucking, if it's not being sent by you.
1: Yeah. And you don't have access to those accounts and passwords. Like, and it's not logged in on your phone no
0: So I don't know. I I don't know if it was just like, this is a US Marshal's wife. So we believe her. Yeah. And you know, this is like the 10th time that she's called us in the last week. So we just have to like shut the, because like in in Dateline, the, the DA was like, no, we were certain if she was on the streets that, Angela was going to be either raped or killed. Like, that was the only option. So we had to, like, fucking incarcerate Michelle.
1: Poor Michelle. I feel so, so bad. Like, she, like, can't get her life back.
0: And then, like, from what I understand, she's still single. Yeah. Yeah, she's still single. So, like, you meet someone, especially on the interwebs, and you'd, like, throw their, you know, into the quick Google search, and it's, like, the real-life Gone Girl. And you're like, what? You want to go and fucking have like abs and certs with that? Yeah. No, like that's. I actually do. <laughs> I would be like,
1: this is crazy. That bitch
0: was wild. Like I will
1: buy all the drinks. Let's fucking. I, I want to hear vent to me, woman. Like, let's do this.
0: I mean, yeah. Like the trauma. I can't even imagine. No,
1: it's so Ugh. poor girl. I hope she's doing OK. Should not deserve that so fucked up.
0: I hope she's doing marketing for Sephora. Oh, that would be lovely. I hope she is too. Yeah. Cause it's a beauty brand. Yeah. That would just make me happy. I spent a lot of money there, girl. <laughs> a lot of money. So I hope I'm contributing to Michelle's paycheck in some way. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thank you again for
1: that story. I, I really enjoyed it. Even though I knew the Twist, quote unquote, I was not prepared for the level.
0: The level is insane, yeah, the level's nuts. Um, thank you for your story. I was not prepared for that many murdered people. No, holy shit. yeah, so many murdered people? That's like war numbers. yeah, seriously.
1: just one right after the other. Jesus, give it a rest. Just
0: nonstop. Also, I guess happy St. patrick's day for for yeah. those of you who uh partake in whatever <laughs> whatever way you do. Cheers. Cheers. Clink, clink. Um <laughs> to our waters. Uh thank you guys so much for listening. We're so obsessed with you. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez and I am Amy Trayden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy and that's lobot period amy. You should also follow the show on the gram. Uh we're at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episodes, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the U and fucking. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We're so obsessed with you. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.